Good morning. Uh, <laughs> it's always this messy and shambly at Mosaic. <laughs> uh, but uh, if you are new here this morning, um, this is. Uh, let me give you a quick little Netflix recap of where we've been with the sermon series. It's called Orthodox Foundational Truths to Treasure, which is really just hitting on key doctrines of the faith. Uh, and so we are we're touching on everything from what is scripture, to, to the Trinity, to heaven, and, and everything in between. And so we, we're talking on a lot of different things, but today we are talking about the church. I know, right? <laughs> You're like, ah, I wish I would have come on a different Sunday. Um, we're studying the church. Uh, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, which means called out or called together. Uh, and I think many today may have ecclesia eczema, uh, which is the title of the sermon today, uh, which is eczema, skin irritation, which is where I feel like we're, we're having a very negative reaction uh, to the church, uh, to organized religion. And, and I think many see entering the church like watching the milk crate challenge. Yes. Have you watched this? <laughs> You watch this milk crate challenge of these people walking up these milk crates and falling, breaking ribs, breaking their noses, and you're going, why? <laughs> why are you doing this to yourself? Why would you willingly want to do that? And I think many are saying that about the church. <laughs> why? <laughs> you're going to break your ribs going to church. <laughs> you're going to break your nose. Why would you willingly put yourself in a position where you can be harmed? I think that's how people are seeing the church right now. It, it, it looks painful. Uh, for many, the church is an unsafe place. There are scandals at leadership levels. There are churches trying to be known for their culture war stance. There, there, are, there are leaders who are trying to say, you know, faith over fear and just embarrassing us as a church. And then there's church hurt, which is just a real thing. There's abuse. There's neglect. There's cover-ups. There's just scandal after scandal. And so sociologists are seeing that in America, there's two truths that are, that are, that are actually revealing themselves, that spiritual interest is at an all-time high in church. But at the same time, there is a decided move away from anything institutionalized, uh, like institutionalized religion. And so one of the questions that, that uh, these sociologists ask Americans, do you believe that you can be a very good Christian without attending church? What would you say? 81%, 81% of America said yes. So why? Why in the world would we ever want to associate with the church? Why would we want to stoop as low to be a of this messed up group of people. I mean, why does God love his church so much? Why does Jesus love his bride? This is what the church is considered in the New Testament, the bride of Christ. And I think many times over the last couple of years, I've, I've asked myself, why do you still love us? Like we've given you nothing giving you nothing to, to cherish about us at times. And, and so today, I want us to look at the church. 
And I'm just going to give us two points this morning because really our third point, we're going to have a picture of uh, some testimonies and and a picture of of these kids who are stepping forward in faith, which is just the best third point. Uh, And so today we're going to look at the unity of the church and the invincibility of the church. Very simple, unity and invincibility. So unity, one of the, the hallmarks of the Christian faith, one of the best things that we have going for us right now is unity. And we can see that very clearly in the American church right now, right? <laughs> when you think of the church, you're like, so unified. <laughs> there are no divisions. There's no intramural debates. Everyone loves one another. That's what we think of when we think of the church. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> but I just want to say, cheer up. It's always been that way. <laughs> it's always been that way. There's always been divisions in the church ever since the beginning of the church. There's always been dividing along cultural lines into monolithic groups, and there's always been a struggle for God's church, even at the beginning, to fight against that. And so at first, you had God's people who who had all been Jews, and then part of one ethnicity, And then one day, Jesus shows up on the scene, and he has this whosoever will program and invites the whole world into it, and you now have Jews sitting next to Gentiles. And Gentiles is just the word ethne, which is where we get ethnicities, or you could translate the nations. And so it's Jews and the world, which is a pretty broad category, the world. And so the world has its own customs. The world has its own fashions, its own music, its own preferences. Gentiles have their own political viewpoints. And so bringing all these different groups from different cultures and backgrounds together is just hard. And it got messy. And it's messy today, isn't it? It's still a mess. Many people in our day love the concept of a multicultural church. But actually being multicultural is another thing. There's an article in The Atlantic uh, that, that shows that even people who live in progressive multicultural neighborhoods end up hanging out with people who look just like themselves. Because we prefer self. We prefer me. We prefer what we like, what we know, what we think is normal whatever normal is. But if the church is just a gathering of like-minded individuals who all look the same, talk the same, think the same, come from same backgrounds and same neighborhoods, then what do we have? Is that a church? Or is that a country club? Like, <laughs> There's nothing magical about gathering a bunch of people who have, or have the same things in common. You can find that at a concert. You can find people who look like you and talk like you and have the same passions as you in a club. What is magical is when you see people who should have nothing in common find everything in common in Christ. And Paul says, because of what Jesus has done in verse 14, he himself is our peace. Jesus has made peace And he is peace. He is your peace. You find peace in him, go to him for peace. Because there was a war, the verse goes on, who has made both of us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
Christ has torn down this dividing wall of hostility. There was a war between you and God. There was beef between you and your creator. And we know who's going to win that war. You, your sin, the things that you've done, the things that you should have done, have now put enmity or beef or hostility between you and your creator. Verse 13 says, you once were far off, way off. But because of Jesus, because Jesus is a wrath quencher, he has quenched and pulled the anger that God had towards you onto himself, and he made peace between you and God. And if we can just get a picture of what we've been spared from, if we can just get a picture and and maybe sniff our own stink, then we would never look down on anyone else. When we were able to see our own sin, how dare we ever look down on anyone else? And so Paul, Paul is saying that he, he's torn down this, this dividing wall of hostility. And I think it's both vertically between us and God, but I, but I do think he's also talking about horizontally between us and one another. He's torn down this dividing wall between us and one another because there literally was a dividing wall around the Jewish temple. We don't have screens, right? No, cool. There was a picture, imagine it in your head, of an div- actual dividing wall <laughs> around the temple. It was about 10 feet high, made of thick stone with a sign on it that said, and I quote, any Gentile entering beyond this wall will only have himself or herself to blame for their ensuing death. You only have yourself to blame for your ensuing death by walking past this wall. Not really a seeker-sensitive service in the Jewish days. It wasn't really a popular church then. We actually tried to erect the same sign outside of Mosaic here, uh, but Mission Waco was like, hey, we're not really going for that look. And we're like, cool, 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 cool. That's that's cool. Uh, Just a sign that says, not welcome. (laughs) Go away. That's, That's what the church wants. Uh, But there was this wall that separated, in the Jewish mind, the good from the bad. The the clean from the unclean. The safe from the unsafe. And and these walls separate the right kind of people from the wrong kind of people. Who are the right kind of people to you? Well, I would never, I would never discriminate based on dot, dot, dot. Some of my best friends are dot, dot, dot. But where do we live? Where do we work? Where do we we connect with one another? Where do we intentionally put ourselves? Do we normally cling to people who are just like us? Maybe it's around money. Are, Are we uncomfortable when around certain people, maybe those considered poor? Are we uncomfortable with them? Are we uncomfortable with those who have money? We don't know how to interact with them. Do do we associate good-looking with good? Politically, do we think those who vote for that party are just idiots, possibly evil? The thing about the church is it tears down walls 
Outside of Christ, there is only one category of people, sinners. When, when, when it comes to God, we are all on the outside of the wall. And there are no good people or bad peoples, winners or losers. There are no people who have it all together and dysfunctional people because we're all dysfunctional. We're all messed up. And there's only a dead, sin-corrupted rebel, but Jesus' blood has cleansed us and brought us back to life. And so in Christ, now there is only one person. There is, the, there is a child made alive in Christ and has given the full inheritance of God's blessings and been adopted into his kingdom. That, that, there is only one kind of people then. Amen? But how unified are we supposed to be now? How unified? Verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The word aliens is foreigner or immigrant. So then you are no longer immigrants, but you are fellow citizens, and not just citizens, but now members of the household of God. Then in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so do you see the beauty that Paul is painting right here? The picture of the church is progressively more and more intimate. It goes from you, you were immigrants, but you are now citizens. You, 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 you come into the country. And then you go from the country into the family. And then you go to being literally on top of one another. And so Christians may be oceans and, and miles apart, but because of Christ, because of Christ, they've been, they've been brought together, and now maybe they're feet apart because they share the same bedroom in the same family. But now they're brought even closer because they're bricks being built on top of one another where God resides in the temple. And when bricks are laid, the only thing separating those bricks is the concrete that glues them together. <laughs> Do you see how unified we are? How unified we are supposed to be? You are the church. Together we are bricks of a temple. There is a unity that binds us closer than anything else in the entire world. And we know that we are equal in God's eyes because of what Christ has done. We're in it together. And so no matter if you're Baptist, if you're Presbyterian, if you're non-denominational, if you're Methodist, or you're a myriad of other denominations, there is unity because there is no wall of hostility here. And we can partner and get our hands dirty with anyone who says that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Amen? And so we looked at the unity of the church. Now let's look at the invincibility of the church. One of my favorite verses in the scriptures comes when Jesus is speaking to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. And he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevent, prevail against it which sounds so encouraging because the gates of hell can't stop the church pressing in on it. But in reality, if you look at the church in America today, I think many churches have difficulty just staying open and staying alive, much less pushing against the, the gates of hell. If, if you look at some of LifeWay's research that they've done, 
And they say in the next seven years, 55,000 churches in the United States will close their doors. And those who attend a Sunday morning on the weekend in the United States will drop from 17% to 14%. And that is all before COVID. The numbers don't look even as promising as that. And so do you ever wonder, will the church make it? It doesn't look, doesn't look bright. But if you believe what Jesus said, then absolutely it will. Absolutely it will. And so it has to. Let me give you four pictures of the church that I, that I got from J.D. Greer on, on, on how it can break down the gates of hell. And the first picture, these are all boats, is the canoe. A canoe holds how many people? Maybe one? Maybe two. We'll go with one, which is great in a canoe. It's fun to be in, go fishing in. But it's a pretty terrible boat if you're trying to win a war, right? But let's just take the war imagery out of it. Let's say you find yourself in a canoe in the middle of the ocean and a wave comes. You're doomed. You're going to need some friends to help you, to, to rescue you, to save you. And so I think the canoe reminds us of the necessity of the church. And one of the best descriptions of the church that I've ever heard comes from a guy named Steve Brown, who has just the great radio voice. And he says, it is a hard world, and I need you desperately. That is the church. What is the church for Steve Brown? He says, it is a hard world, and I need you desperately. <laughs> That's the picture of the church. We cannot do it alone. We cannot go it alone. We, the darkness can be too much. If I try to go this alone, I'm going to fail. I need brothers and sisters to encourage me, to spur me on when I'm faltering. I need you to call me out when I'm sinning, to weep with me, to bear my burdens with me. The church is so critical that I would say that you can't grow in isolation. I mean, think about it. Like Whenever we sin, the first temptation is to isolate. It's to go by ourselves. And we think that's where we're going to grow, by ourselves in isolation, so we beat ourselves up. But what the gospel does, the gospel says, you're a sinner, but so am I. And so it brings us together. It, bring, it binds us together and builds us up. Because no matter who you are, you're not out of God's reach. The gospel brings us together. And so the next boat I want to give you is one that's going to bring us together. We are not alone anymore. But another picture that people might have of the church is not a canoe, but the cruise ship. Maybe you've seen a church that is acting more like a cruise ship. And so the, the, the purpose of this church is to serve its members. It is focused on those uh, inside of its church, and they want everyone to have a good experience. The church exists to give their members a great experience, and so they might have a buffet at the their, at their church. They might have a pool. They might have batting cages. It can get out of hand. <laughs> the focus is inward right? Which I joke, but the real question that we want to ask is, should the church exist to serve its people to look inward or to look outward? Is our goal discipleship of the people we have or evangelism of the people who are not here? Yes. Yes is the answer to that. We want you to come and see and be filled and be encouraged 
to do that, we actually really need you as a church to help us. We actually need, we actually need some of you to help serve. Um, uh, we need musicians. Love a drummer. Um, <laughs> we love more pianists, right? We, we, we need greeters. We need hospi- people helping with hospitality. We need nursery. We need kids workers. We need you. We can't do it alone. But, that can't, but Sunday morning just can't be the end of our stories. We can't just live for Sunday morning, this one hour on Sunday morning. Like the, there are 167 hours left in the week. Let's seize the rest of the week and not just live for the weekend. And so the next boat is trying to seize those 167 hours, and that's the battleship. So you got the canoe, you got the cruise ship, and then you got the battleship who says, I'm, we're going all out on the, on the offensive. Let's fix the problem of the cruise ship, and let's fight the darkness. And this church is made for mission, to push the mission forward, storming hell's gates. But the problem in this view of the church is the role of the church members they might see themselves as their role is to just pay the leaders and the pastors of the church to find the targets and fire their guns each week as they gather to watch. And so the programs and the services and the ministries of the church um, are primary, and sometimes they're the sole instruments of the church. And so you see you got the, the canoe, the cruise ship, the battleship, and let me give you one more. And this is the aircraft carrier. It's the last one, so it's always the right one. (laughs) Aircraft carriers equip planes to bring the battle elsewhere. To bring the battle elsewhere. And to me, this is the biblical picture of the church. Ephesians 4, 12 says, Our role as a church is to equip the saints for the works of ministry. To equip you for the work of ministry. To bring the fight as doctors, as lawyers, as teachers, as social workers, as students, as foster parents, whatever you may find yourself. Because as leaders, our job is not to just gather you and amaze you. Our job is to help you discover the power and the potential of the spirit within you. When the church stops hoarding all of the mission and actually unleashes you, the church can't be stopped. God cannot be stopped through you. You're unstoppable. And why am I so confident in the invincibility of the church? Because death couldn't even stop our God. Jesus came all the way back from death. And when he came back, he blew open that tomb. And if you saw what he did to the devil, when the devil came after him, guess what he's going to do when he sees what the devil was coming after his bride? He ain't going to like that. And you can see... We can, we can naturally see how invincible this grace is when you see it put into action. Like grace is just irresistible when you see it being offered to someone. When you see people who should have nothing in common are coming together, bound by this grace. Because grace crosses borders. Hospitality crosses border. That unity compels you to something deeper. When you love Across what should be a wall, it tears down people's perceptions of the church. And it makes us want that type of grace. And it makes us want to know that type of God. Let me close with this story. There's this great story by a pastor named Tony Campolo, where he was out late one night in Hawaii, 
and he, he finds this dive of a restaurant, and he goes in, it's, it's very much a dive of a restaurant, it's so dirty, it's so grimy that he doesn't even want to touch the menu because he's scared if he opens it up, something might crawl out of it. And so he's like, what can I order safe? I'll get a coffee, <laughs> and I'll get a donut in one of those glass and case. That looked safe. And so the guy, the, the guy working the counter uses his hands to pick up the donut and put it on his plate. He's like, <laughs> And so he, as he's sitting there, he says, as I was sitting there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open. And to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. And since it was a ghost town in this diner, all of their conversation took over the whole place. And as they were talking, he was trying not to listen, but as they were talking, later he hears one of, the, one of them over saying, what do you want me to buy you a birthday cake? And then the other one says, I, I was just telling you it was my birthday tomorrow. Like, why do you have to be so mean? I, I, I don't even want a birthday party. I don't even want a birthday cake. I've never had one before in my life. Why should I have one now? And it was at this point that Tony decided to do something. And so he waited until this group of women left. And he asked the guy at the counter, hey, do these women come in here? every night? And the guy said, yep, every night like clockwork. And, and he said, but the one sitting next to me, does she come in here every night? And he said, yeah, that's Agnes. She comes in here every night. Why? And he said, because I, I heard that her birthday is tomorrow. And I told him, what do you say you and I do something about that? What do, what do you say if the two of us throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. And the guy's like, <laughs> okay, sure. And, and he said, look, if, if it's okay with you, uh, I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 2.30 a.m. and I'll decorate the place from floor to ceiling with happy birthday Agnes everywhere. And the guy said, okay. And he's like, and I'll, I'll even bring a cake. And then he goes, no, no, no. The birthday cake is my thing. The guy's name is Harry. Harry says, the birthday cake is my thing. I'll make the cake. And so the next day at 2.30 in the morning, he comes back to the diner, and he's, he's this, this grimy, nasty diner, diner, and he decorates it from floor to ceiling. Streamers, balloons, banners, happy birthday, Agnes. And as he's decorated, I guess one of the cooks might have had the word get out, because now at 3.15, the diner is now packed shoulder to shoulder with all of this woman's friends. And at 3.30 on the dot, in walks Agnes with her friends, and the whole place bursts out. Happy birthday, Agnes! And she freezes. And her knees buckle. And her friends have to hold her so that she can stand. And she's crying. She doesn't know what to do. And so then they start singing happy birthday to her. And as they're singing happy birthday to her, Harry, the diner owner, walks out the cake to her with the candles on it and puts it in front of her, and she just stares there, looking at the cake. 
and does, not, no, does nothing. And so then Harry says, blow out the cake, Agnes. Come on, come on, blow it out. That's what we do, blow it out. And, and finally she does blow it out. And so then he, Harry hands her the knife and says, it's your, it's your birthday, why don't you cut the very first slice? And Agnes just stares there and then softly says, Harry, if it's all right with you, if, if it's okay, can we not cut the cake? Can I, just, can, I just, can I just look at it for a little bit longer? And Harry says, of course, of course. We don't have to eat it right away. I mean, if you want to keep the cake, you can keep the cake. Take it home with you if you want to. And she goes, can I? And then she looks to Tony and, and starts, I just lived down the street for a second. Could, could I take the cake home with me? Can, can, I just, can I just leave it there? I'll be right back. And everyone's like, of course, it's your birthday. You do what you want. And so she leaves. Cherishing this birthday cake because she's never had a birthday. And now at 3.30 in the morning with a diner full of prostitutes, there's just awkward dead silence. What do we do? Waiting for their friend to come back. And Tony steps forward and says, hey, what, until she comes back, is it okay if I pray for her? And they said, sure. And so they all bow their heads. <laughs> and Tony prays for her and prays that she would know how loved and cherished she is, that she would know on her day, this special day, that it is, she is created unique and that she's been made in the image of God and God loves her that much and that she would come to know that love. And when he finishes praying, the whole room says, Amen. <laughs> And then Harry tells to Tony, he says, hey, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of these perfect moments, Tony answers, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) And Harry waited a moment and he sneered. He said, no, you don't. There is no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Wouldn't we all, <laughs> wouldn't we all want to join a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning, that loves people like that? <laughs> wouldn't we want to be a part of that? <laughs> well, that's the kind of church that Jesus came to create. That's what the church truly is. You are invincible when you get grace. Because when you get it, you give it. When you understand what God has done for you, you love every single person as a child of God. And when grace is on display like that, you are invincible. And so let's be a church that throws parties for people and let's shock them with the irresistible love of Christ. Let's pray.